All right, well, hey, Door of Hope, it's Cameron. It's good to be with you. Um, we're just going to jump right in. Uh, I don't know if in that scripture reading you had this thought, uh, but you may have done something like this. Huh? <laughs> Especially on verse 6 that says, This is he who came by the water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Um. What is John talking about here? Uh, funny enough, most of the commentators I read as, as I was studying this passage um, noted that this is maybe the most perplexing verse in, in John's writings. Uh, and so we need a sidebar here for a second. Before we get into the meat of the sermon, this is a great opportunity to address something that's uh, an important principle for, for trying to understand the scripture, which is uh, we are going to run into this. There's a challenge that comes with our temporal, cultural, situational distance from these ancient letters that we're reading. Part of what makes the Bible um, so beautiful and interesting is that it claims to be authored both by God himself through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and by people as they employed their very human processes for writing located in their specific relationships and situations and controversies and all that. But this also means we have to work very hard <laughs> to understand the situations that prompted these writings if we want to understand them accurately. And so uh, a text like this makes, makes this principle very clear as John emphasizes that Jesus didn't only come by water, uh, but by the blood too. Um, what is it about the blood that makes John need to really emphasize this aspect and what in the world is he even talking about with these terms. So let's just get this out of the way first. Um, well, a few, a few hints can help us get, get a sense of, of what John is talking about with this kind of interesting sentence. First, notice how um, John just casually mentions this and doesn't take any time to explain his terms. Um, he doesn't feel a need to explain his terms. So we can assume that these terms, the water and the blood, uh, and to a lesser extent, the spirit, um, were, were going to be well understood by the people that were reading. Um, maybe these were commonly used terms by the churches that, that John was writing to, the churches that he influenced. Secondly, notice that evidently John's readers and John's theological challengers would not have doubted Jesus coming by the water. Um, but he, he feels that there's some debate having to do with the blood. So the importance of the blood is what John has to defend here. Whatever he means by that, this is what he has to defend. And then third, uh, a little bit of cultural background study will show us that maybe something that's important to understanding this is that there were a few false teachings or false readings of John's gospel that were circulating at the time that, that claimed a couple of things. One was that it saw Jesus's baptism as either the moment when Jesus was endowed with divinity. So he wasn't, he wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the Christ. He wasn't perhaps not even the son of God until that moment of baptism when the spirit descended on him. Or secondly, that the baptism was the moment where he was given the spiritual enlightenment that was the real key to providing salvation rather than his death on the cross. So both of these views were kind of swimming out there. The baptism was the moment of where the action was. And it, the, on either view, they trivialized the death, uh, his death on the cross as vital uh, for salvation. 
and they trivialize or reject his incarnation, his real humanity, the genuine humanity of the Christ or the Son of God. So it's very likely that that's in the background of what John's arguing here. All that said, Here's where I lean uh, on defining these terms. There's multiple good ways you could think about this. If you go read some commentaries, here's what I would put forward is where I lean on this. And we don't have to be dogmatic about what I'm asserting. If you feel like there's a better explanation, I would say pursue that and see see what you find. Um, but 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 the view I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, put forward follows the second century North African theologian, the early church father Tertullian, if you've heard that name before. So we're in we're in good uh, good company here. First is the testimony of the water. What's he mean by that? Jesus' baptism in water at the hands of John the Baptist, which marked the beginning of his public ministry. And Matthew 3.17 records, this is the moment when the Spirit hovered above him and the Father declared, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I think the water is referring to that moment, the moment of baptism, his identifying with sinful humanity humbly and embarking on his public ministry, embracing the, uh, the testimony of, of the Father and the Spirit in that moment. Number two, what is the blood, the testimony of the blood? I think it's referring to Jesus' crucifixion and death as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. Uh, If we're right about this, then in emphasizing the blood, John was challenging a view that downplayed the importance of his death on the cross. He's challenging the view of a crossless Christianity. And then number three, the testimony of the Spirit. Um, I would argue that this is probably referring to Jesus' empowerment by the Holy Spirit during his ministry. Uh, maybe it's the same idea that's also behind the story, this mysterious story in Mark 3 or Matthew 12, where Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man. And he, in that moment, he's overpowering the kingdom of Satan himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Pharisees saw it, and they accused Jesus of being in league with Satan. And Jesus' response is that but, but when you look at the clear, powerful, beautiful working of the Holy Spirit through me on behalf of, uh, of God and his kingdom, and you call it the work of Satan, um, you are committing the, uh, what he calls the unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's to look the work and power and beauty of God in the eye and attribute it to the devil, I think, is what's going on there. And so I think that's what's going on here. It's in all of Jesus's beautiful life and ministry, the spirit was constantly at work, powerfully and visibly in it. As commentator Thomas Slater put, he says, the activity of the Holy Spirit in his life, the spirit who speaks to our human spirits even now. So I think it's about the the way the spirit testified to Jesus then and possibly also to the way the spirit is ongoingly bearing witness in our hearts uh, to the truth of Jesus and who he was. Okay, so there you go. That's, that's what we're going to understand as the, the, the water, the blood, and the spirit. And we know here that they're all three in agreement. His baptism, his spirit-empowered ministry, and his crucifixion all declared Jesus to be the victorious one, the Messiah, the Son of God, the bringer of life. Um, well, we'll move on. So uh, to verse 9. Um, Verse 9 says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. We'll pause there. 
So he wants to highlight the test that this testimony comes from God himself as well. The point of this verse is that, look, John is going to lean into people's willingness to receive people's testimonies. That's fine. It's, it's good and it's right that we, we trust people. And that when, when certain people uh, relay something to us, we don't automatically reject it. Plenty of, there's plenty of people that we trust. That's a good thing. But he says, how much more should we receive the direct supernatural testimony of God himself in history? He says, look, God has spoken through these various means and others about Jesus. And just pause there and think how many things we take on the authority of men or women or the authority of a man-made system of authority. How many times do these things fail us when we put our trust in them? Um, Even something as seemingly objective and fail-proof as the empirical sciences um, can't be fully relied on. And so to, to illustrate this, I, this might be really nerdy uh, or boring for some of us, but I, I think it illustrates this, this pretty well. So in the 20th century, there's a philosopher of science named Thomas uh, Kuhn, who published this monumental book in 1962 called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Um, and in this book, he basically argued super convincingly. It's a really fascinating book. Uh, if you're into this sort of thing. But he argued very convincingly that the common way most of us think about scientific advancement is totally wrong. Generally, most of us assume that our scientific understanding of the universe progresses incrementally, um, adding adding facts little by little, and it's almost like each new discovery is like a new brushstroke that gets us one step closer to completing a coherent picture. So we're accumulating facts little by little, building out an accurate picture. But but Kuhn's conclusion was that really after studying the most significant scientific turning points in in modern history, so think of like the Copernican Revolution, think of the advent of Newtonian uh, mechanics, think of uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. When he looked at those, he saw that scientific progress is actually made by utilizing a specific paradigm that guides um, the questions that you ask and the observations you make. And, but little by little, a paradigm will start to encounter anomalies, pieces of data that don't fit the overarching system or the overarching theory. Eventually, enough anomalies are discovered that challenge the paradigm that results in the need to destroy the paradigm and start over with something new, replace it with another paradigm. And the new paradigm represents, in many ways, a new world (laughs) in which countless of the old scientific facts, or what were thought to be scientific facts, are now proven irrelevant. My point here is not to denigrate science. Please hear this. I'm deeply grateful for science. Um, I believe Christians should be have incredible value for scientific discovery as part of humanity's mandate to cultivate and to understand the world that God has made. That is a good thing. I'm not urging anyone to become anti-science. Um, but the work of thinkers like Kuhn and others should give us a healthy sense of caution uh, before accepting any scientific claim as absolute truth. That same claim could be found to be meaningless and irrelevant tomorrow because we've seen this happen time and time again with each scientific revolution. And so um, that's my point. We put a lot of trust in science. Science has yielded some incredible blessings for us. I think that God is even behind 
Um, but our science is not infallible. And in so, here's my point, to get in John's language, think of how much we trust man, think of how much we trust something man-made like modern science. How much more so must we trust the testimony of God himself? That's the question John's putting to us. If God exists, and he is the God of all knowledge, truth, and wisdom like he claims, and he has spoken definitively to his creation in history, this we can trust without reservation uh, or fear that the rug might be torn out from under us at some point. If we can trust fallible men, how much more can we trust the infallible God is John's logic here. And I think it's sound logic. Well, then we get into verses 10 through 12. This is the last section. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life life. What's the point of these verses? It's that the father has testified about his son. Maybe, maybe John intends us for us to connect this back to the beginning of the passage. Perhaps that testimony came through the water of baptism, the blood of the cross, and the spirit evidencing the goodness and the beauty and the godliness of Jesus's ministry. The father has testified and our response must be sincere belief or faith in, in the Son and in the Father as genuinely revealed. For nowhere else can you find life. That's his point. God has spoken and we ought to trust him. And what he said about the Son is the only place we can find life. And he, he says in there as well that to not believe God is, is to make God a liar. And this seems to imply that the, the testimony of God is clear and observable enough. that There's no excuse for not believing it. Indeed, um, like Hebrews 1 says, uh, Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in Son. That's the passage we looked at the very first week of Door of Hope Northeast. Jesus lived, and he taught, and he performed miracles, and he died, and he raised bodily from the dead in public. In public. Through all of this, God was speaking and revealing and confirming. And he has protected this truth, this testimony, for generations, for 2,000 years now, in his scriptures and in the testimonies of his disciples, empowered by his spirit. It's clear enough. To not believe is to make God a liar. John's point, it is a bold, bold move to reject what God has testified about his son. And, and not just bold, but fatal, he says. And, and this rejecting of God's testimony about Jesus, it can take many forms. Of course, there's all kinds of different kinds of, uh, of heresy uh, that have, have been introduced into the church throughout the ages. Um, uh, but even, even more than outright heresy, there are subtle ways that Christians can get bored with the historic truth, the saving truth of the gospel. You can find it old hat. You can find it too simple. 
maybe insufficient to deal with the whatever the problem is that, that's facing us uh, right now. Um, we can begin to turn to other ideas or worldviews for answers that seem like they have something more compelling to offer. Have you heard of QAnon? Um, I honestly didn't even really want to talk about this because I find it, it just comes across as so bizarre and fringe. Um, but I, I've been shocked to see the way in which it's gaining steam amongst Christians um, across the country. So I should probably be addressed here. I think it fits uh, this sort of distortion that John is talking about. Um, if you haven't seen much about it, uh, QAnon is a, a basically a political conspiracy theory um, that began in 2017 when an anonymous 4chan user, now known as Q, posted alleged insider knowledge about the imminent arrest of Hillary Clinton uh, by the Trump administration. Um, and since then, Q has been regularly posting what he implies is insider intelligence that sometimes honestly has the feeling of like religious prophecy or something like that. Much of it having to do with Donald Trump as the world's sole defender against a host of forces, including celebrity sex trafficking rings, coronavirus and cell phone tower conspiracies, deep state intrigue, and an apocalyptic sounding confrontation coming in the near future. Um, Many Christians have sadly uh, been embracing this movement, contributing to the dissemination of <laughs> easily disprovable lies and slander of individuals, um, forming a cultish hybrid of discipleship to Jesus with discipleship to Q. Um, it's motivated violence at times. It's clogged up needed resources to fight the world's actual, very real sex trafficking problems. Um, it's, it's hampered our national response to COVID-19. And, and sadly, uh, it has shifted many believers' hopes um, from, from King Jesus and his coming kingdom's triumph over actual evil um, to Q and various politicians' imagined triumphs over mirages. Um, this is just one example of people refusing to trust God and his revelation as our authority for where life and human flourishing are to be found and, and clinging on to something frankly bizarre and strange, but apparently powerful and potent enough to capture the imaginations and the hearts of, of lots of our, our brothers and sisters. Um, but what John says here is the truth that we've had from the beginning. The same truth that goes all the way back to, to John himself and to Jesus before that. That to have the Son of God is to have life. Eternal life. And what John says here echoes what he said in his gospel, chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, which is Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So people, people in every age are going to put forward crossless Jesuses, inhuman Jesuses, political Jesuses that fit their specific ideology only. They might put forward new saviors and new hopes and new diagnoses for the problems that plague our world. But we declare... <laughs> I hope you declare 
that the best news that ever was is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Please, God, may we not let that verse, the power and beauty of that verse become pat or old news for us. Life is found in one place only, and it's not in human achievement. It's not in us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps in order to earn it. It's not by being born into it. It's not by being um, cool enough to earn it. It's not by having enough to contribute a value to be welcomed into it. It's found in the God-man, Jesus, who died in your place and in my place as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, who freely offers us life, abundant, beautiful, eternal life as partners with him in his everlasting kingdom to see all things put right. He promises to do it and to let us share in it. And there is no other hope for what ails us. Nor could we conceive of a hope that's better and more beautiful that is by his work alone and simply us bending the knee to him in faith and in trust and receiving the free gift and and not only receiving it for ourselves, but, but being so enamored with that truth that we go and we declare what John has already mentioned earlier, that it's not for us only, but for the sins of the whole world that none might perish, but that all might have eternal life. Um, so in a world that puts forward all kinds of different, uh, answers, may we be confident and certain that there is one, <laughs> it's Jesus. It's the, it's the, it's the true Jesus of scripture. It's the true Jesus that the water and the blood and the spirit testify to that God himself has stamped with his approval. So friends, our call, if you don't know him, is to trust him. If you're watching this, you have no idea what I'm talking about, email me. Um, but you trust him and be welcomed in with open arms. And if you do know him, it's to believe more fervently today than you did yesterday and to remain close to him. Because he's good and because nowhere else is sincere life to be found. Amen? Amen.